This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You may know that the mother of Columbine High School killer Dylan Klebold has written a new book. Sue Klebold talked to us last week about her account called A Mother's Reckoning. It is rare for the families of mass shooters to speak publicly, and so we were wondering how the book's highly publicized release affects the people whose loved ones were gunned down. Sisters Connie and Angela Sanders lost their father Dave that day, April 20th, 1999. He was a coach and teacher at Columbine. They have different feelings about Klebold's decision to write the book, proceeds from which we should say we'll go to groups that focus on mental health, and welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So, Connie, you've read some of the book. Angela, you haven't, but you've both watched and listened to interviews with Sue Klebold. You know, perhaps the most burning question that she answers in the book is, were there signs that Dylan was planning this attack, which killed 13 people, injured many more? Here's how she answered. The way Dylan presented himself to me and what was happening in his life did not show me any indications that he was as ill as he really was, as, um, you know, off the rails. I would like your reactions to that revelation from this book. Connie, what do you think? You know, I think that we all wanted her to have some fantastic answer that we could turn to and say, wow, this person is at risk of doing something dangerous. And I think the biggest lesson that that she's trying to get through to people is there isn't one answer. There are a lot of risk factors that need to be considered. And it's not always the parents that will see those risk factors. It's a combination of the community and the school and the parents and the peers. When you knew that she was writing a book and that it would soon be released, were you at least hoping that there would be some big aha moment? Or did you realize that it probably wouldn't come? Of course, I hoped that there would be an answer and something that uh, people could latch on to and something significant. But as a mental health provider, I do know that uh, those answers don't come with, with one sentence or one solution or one identified problem. You work as a therapist in Denver with violent offenders on probation and parole. Angela, to that idea that there were no signs for Sue Klebold that her son was involved in something really nefarious, what do you think? Uh, She actually does say in the 2020 interview that there were signs of him being different. Um, But, I mean, nobody expects their child to do something, (laughs) you know, um, like what was carried out. Um, But there, in in my opinion, there, there was a succession of events that maybe should have been looked into more instead of just ignored as, you know, being a teenager or whatever it was passed off as. Sue Klebold told us, for instance, that her son had been in a diversion program uh, after stealing some equipment. And it was actually in that program with another shooter, with with, uh, um, uh, Eric Harris. And that even the, the morning of the shooting, she felt a little off about how Dylan left her home. Are those the kinds of incidents you're talking about? Yes, just, um, you know, a kid who's a good kid and doesn't seem to have any issues. And then he suddenly has this succession of events that are um, much different from his normal behavior. Um, and as as a parent, I would ask more questions, you know, look into it more. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not going to assume that my kid's going to go on this rampage, but but definitely look more 
as to what's going on. How do you both feel about <clears throat> the fact that Sue Klebold has written a book? Connie? My feelings on it were torn because I I am really passionate about the no notoriety that, you know, let's stop showing pictures and, and saying the name of, of mass shooters and try to lessen the sensationalism of it. So my first reaction was, oh, my goodness, is this going to be another blueprint for mass murder that, you know, some of these people that have really latched on to the tragic or, you know, to tragedies really want to um, carry them out? Is this going to be another blueprint? But then there was a piece of me once I started hearing that um, it was about mental health where my heart made a turn. And I said, you know, anything that we can do anything that we can do to identify the risk factors to get, you know, the general public to listen to what those risk factors are is going to be highly beneficial. Uh, but I'm, I'm torn because, you know, in the past week, we've heard, you know, the boy's name that, you know, shot, killed our dad over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that is really traumatic, not only for us, but for, you know, the community and specifically Colorado. And it sounds like you're torn in part because this could be, you fear, a blueprint for perhaps other shooters who are inspired. But it also could be a blueprint for how to prevent future shootings. Would you say that that's, that's the, the conundrum you're facing? Absolutely. But one thing that, that occurred to me was if we can't stop the people committing uh, these atrocities, if we could inform and train the people around them to see the risk factors, if we can't stop the shooters, let's encourage the people around them to make changes or recognize risk factors. And then the problem comes with what do they do when they identify them? And, and that's the bigger question. Angela, your sense of the book, um, what do you think of the, of the fact that it's been released? I wonder why 17 years later, um, almost. <laughs> um, I, I, I have not read the book, so I cannot speak on that. I don't know if I will read the book, but in the interviews that I have seen and listened to, um, I feel like they're a really great tribute to Dylan. But for me personally, I don't, I don't see anything answered or any, way to help people through what's been said. Um, again, again, obviously, I'm not a mental health professional. So, you know, but just in in my listening and my watching, I'm not seeing any big ahas. Can I respond to that? Please do. So um, I called Angela because I, I was in near panic, which happens, you know, when we see things like this. And, and when I called her after the, the interview. This was after the Diane Sawyer interview? Yes. And I said, what did you think? And she said, it was a nice tribute to a murderer. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I love is that, you know, we can have such differing opinions on such things. But, you know, seeing it from her point of view, I can also see how this was traumatic for other people that, you know, many of our family member stories have never been heard. And so for people to hear the story of the people that murdered our family members, but our family members are um, forgotten is difficult. You mentioned, Angela, that it's been 17 years. And I think to the an outsider, that might seem like a really long time. You know, oh, 17 years is a period of time after which it's appropriate to write a book. But hearing it from you, 17 years is not long at all. And the wounds are still fresh. Would you say that? 
I think that we all go through, well, I go through different phases of where I'm at in my process. And it feels like every time I get on a really good process and I'm moving forward in amazing ways, then something comes up to put me back on April 20th. You wanted to interject something to what your sister was saying? I just, yeah. When I talked to my sister, I just said that the 2020 interview was um, a nice tribute to him and um, a great push for Sue's new book. To him, her son, Dylan Klebold. Another critical question was whether Sue Klebold thinks there was something she could have done differently as a parent. And I think that this reflects to a certain extent what you were talking to us about earlier, Connie. In trying to understand his death and why such a thing happens, in Dylan's case, I believe his suicidality was the mechanism through which he participated in this. So when I focus on his loss or talk about his death as a suicide, I'm sure it feels very offensive to some people that uh, because it seems that I'm disregarding the murders, and I'm not and um, of course, but this is the, the way that I am trying to understand it. This notion that Columbine was for her as much a suicide as a murder, um, even she acknowledges, is a controversial viewpoint. And I'd like your reaction to it. It is how she has tried to understand it. So one of the things that I've spent a lot of time in my profession is, you know, having empathy, trying to see the world from other people's perspective. And I understand her her need to see it as a suicide. Um, I don't know that any human being could manage the, the guilt and the emotion surrounding the fact that all of these lives had been either lost or significantly impacted by her son. So I think that's a self-protective mechanism. But again, it goes back to that, um, you know, kind of downplaying the murder side of it. And that that's somewhat difficult, but I understand her need to do that, that she couldn't process what he had done with each individual person that was harmed, considering, you know, this was something recognized worldwide. Hmm. I asked her if that was self-preservation, and she acknowledged that it might very well be. Angela, what's your reaction to this idea that Columbine was as much a suicide as it was a murder? That might be somewhere where my sister and I actually agree. <laughs> um, I I uh, definitely think that that's probably some self-protection for her. Um, and in my opinion, I don't think that she's really fully grasped, not grasped. I think she she knows what happened, but I don't know that she's okay with it in her head to just say it, you know. Um, so like, like Connie said, I think it's a self-protective, which, you know, I do have to say, like, I'm not anti-Sue Klebold. I couldn't even imagine what this poor woman is is going through. Um, and I do feel for her in that aspect. I just have some frustrations in other places. Have either of you thought about writing a book? I have. Um, and for me, I think it's about healing. So I do, I do that through humor. Um, but I recognize that the platform that built my coping through humor was actually my dad's murder. Um, So I have considered it, um, but it's very personal. And I think that this had to have been difficult for Sue Klebold as well, that um, it's, it's very vulnerable. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're letting people into your world and into your mind and into your heart. And there is a lot of room for, for criticism. 
in that. And also with the, would I also be contributing to the notoriety of the two boys that murdered him? Mm, even in telling your own story. Yes. You wrote a letter, Connie, to Sue Klebold, I think after the, the book's release. Yes. W- would you read some of that for us and then maybe tell us what your intention was? So I've had the opportunity for a while uh, to write to Sue Klebold through a mutual friend. Uh, and I had a hard time putting it together. And I was nervous about the book. And I didn't want to write the letter until I could understand the premise of the book. Um, So part of what I wrote to her um, in the letter, it said, I work with people who have begun a journey down a path of pain and destruction that some have already traveled. When I sit with my clients, I imagine not only my clients' pain, but the pain and suffering of their families as a result of their offense. Nobody thinks things like this will happen to them. It would be sad if we did expect such atrocities from our loved ones. Nobody grows up thinking about going to prison, hurting people, and committing horrific acts. Those thoughts form over time. It strikes me that a theme I'm hearing in that letter and from both of you is that – and we have to put ourselves in the, the mindset um, of, of the country at the time. School shootings were, were exceptional. They were not something you saw on the news every day. I, I seem to hear from both of you an acknowledgment that – no matter what the signs, no one could have conjured up how heinous the attacks on Columbine were. Would you say that's true, Angela? To a certain degree. But, but not, not but fully. Not fully, no, mm. not fully. Just say a little bit more about that for me. Um, I uh, have a hard time with um, the other boys – um, situation because Eric Harris's yes because as a as a parent who really tries to pay attention to what my children are doing and maybe it's different now that Columbine has happened than it may have been before I don't know but there were obvious things going on with that child that should have been addressed and gone you know something should have been done about obvious signs and that is another narrative, another story with a lot of questions unanswered, I suppose. Are you in touch with with his family at all? Never. No. Neither of you. I want to ask you about a couple of tweets that came out recently from the Colorado Attorney General, Cynthia Kaufman. Um, This was in response to Sue Klebold's book and to her interview with Diane Sawyer. I'm quoting the tweet from the AG. Shooter's mom doesn't get it. Decision to talk now doesn't prevent school shootings, instead could have very negative consequences. Hashtag selfish. There was a lot of blowback um, on this, including from some members of the Columbine community. Angela, I'd like your take on this balance between how much telling the story can be helpful and how much it can be harmful. And and let me just remind listeners, you haven't read the book and and you're wrestling with whether to do so. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had a loss there for a second. Sorry. Um, I I feel like the more information is out there that it could help. But like I said before, my my mindset right now without reading the book and just seeing the interviews is that nothing – 
magical or no answers have come or anything to me that would uh, uh, not that would stop somebody else from doing this. Like I said, to me, it was a really nice tribute about him and his life, <laughs> um, you know, but. But again, I haven't read the book, so I can't, I can't speak on that. One key point was talk to your kids, mm-hmm. Sue Klebold was saying, and, and don't necessarily offer an immediate solution to what their problems are. Talk to them and listen to them. And I, she used the words shut up yeah. and listen to them. Listen is huge. You both are nodding your heads yes to that. Yes, and I can say that as a parent um, who had uh, – my daughter went through some really difficult things – and I myself missed some of the signs, um, and she ended up in trouble. Uh, it wasn't anything serious, but I think it was at that moment that I realized that as a parent, we have an influence on our children, but we're not the only influence. And so that may be where some of my identifying with Sue Klebold comes from, is that I have been in the position of that shock that my child could do something, you know, like she did. And as a parent, I didn't know. I want to thank you both for being with us. And, uh, you know, to what extent does even this conversation feel like reopening a wound? I I, I wonder what our our own role is in that. I I am in a place in my life where every day is positive and happy because of my career and the things that I that I do in my life now. So for me, this is very emotional and it's very stressful. Um, and it's very hard for me to keep going back and reliving this every time something new comes up. I understand that it's going to happen, but I try and stay away from it as much as I can. This is really hard uh, for me because I, I work with people convicted of violent crime and I have about 100 clients at a time coming through my agency. So when I do things like this, they hear it. Uh, many of them don't know my story. Um, so I know that when I do things like this, it's a reopening that will take some time to close. Um, and it is, you know, somewhat difficult. I mean, I I have Sue Klebold's book, and it was by my bed. And I woke up looking at a picture of the boy that murdered my my father. And, you know, so that set me back. And I had a difficult time. And even after 17 years, there are times when you can't handle it. And, you know, I called Angela from inside my closet because I was panicking after watching the 2020 interview. Uh, In that environment, with that context, all the more reason we're grateful that you joined us today. So Connie and Angela Sanders, their father Dave Sanders, was killed in the attacks at Columbine High School in 1999. You can find the interview with Sue Klebold at CPRnews.org. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You have probably seen TV ads for Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders ahead of Colorado's caucuses on Super Tuesday next week. Well, reporter Sandra Fish specializes in campaign finance, and she's with us to talk about how much candidates are spending in Colorado ahead of March 1st. And good to see you again, Sandra. Great to be back, Ryan. You like to geek out on these spending numbers. What are you seeing in the ad campaigns for the two Democratic candidates I mentioned uh, in this state? Well, Bernie Sanders is actually far outspending Hillary Clinton here in terms of TV. 
He spent more than $1.6 million, while she spent in the $700,000 range. So Sanders has spent more than twice as much as Hillary Clinton on TV ads here. Yes, he has, Ryan. And this includes cable and satellite ads, with both candidates airing ads on a variety of local and cable standards, such as AMC, ESPN, cable news networks, and, of course, the local news. All told, Coloradans will see more than 10,000 TV ads from these two candidates this month. What can you say about the fact that Sanders is spending so much more? There are two interesting aspects about Sanders' ad spending here, Ryan. First, Sanders is buying ads not just in Denver, but in Grand Junction and Colorado Springs, two smaller markets that serve audiences that tilt more Republican, although Hillary Clinton is starting to advertise a little bit in the Springs this week. The Denver market serves a more purple audience in the state, and that's where Clinton has focused most of her attention. Second, from early on through Sunday, Sanders' campaign ran a 60-second ad which is really somewhat of a rarity these days. 30-second ads are more common. Far more common. And the I think the 60-second ad you're referring to is the Simon and Garfunkel one? Yeah, let's take a listen to the ad titled America. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. I've got some real estate here in my bag. It's just Simon and Garfunkel singing America until the very end when the candidate says, I'm Bernie Sanders and I approve this message. That's a requirement for candidate advertising. There are images of people on farms, people in cities, parents and children, people working, people dancing at a Sanders rally in this ad. A positive ad for sure. What about the others running in Colorado? Thus far, these ads are about candidate messages. Just this week, Clinton came out with her own 60-second ad. It's an emotional one featuring Clinton and a 10-year-old girl who fears her parents might be deported. It's clearly aimed at Latino voters. I'm scared for them because of the deportation. I'm scared that they're going to be deported. Here, come here, baby. Okay. Clinton asks the girl to come up to her and offers her a hug. I'm going to do everything I can so you don't have to be scared. It's pretty positive stuff here in Colorado. How does Colorado compare to other states in terms of political ad spending so far? Well, in reality, Ryan, Colorado isn't seeing as much activity as some states, but it's definitely getting more Democratic attention than others. Consider the Nevada Democratic caucuses won by Clinton last Saturday. The Wesleyan Media Project that tracks and analyzes political advertising estimates that Sanders had the edge there, spending $2.6 million on TV to Clinton's $2.5 million. And that's a lot of cash. On the other hand, in the Minneapolis market, the spending is comparable or a bit less than in Colorado. Sanders is at about $730,000, while Clinton is close to 600000 Minnesota is also holding caucuses on Super Tuesday. Why do ad numbers matter? Well, for one thing, and primarily, TV advertising is one of the biggest expenses for a presidential campaign. It is how campaigns communicate their messages to the masses. I guess we're all watching TV. Uh, No, (laughs) but I guess enough of us are that it's still a priority. What's the big national picture look like, especially compared uh, to past presidential years, though? Well, nationally, Clinton and Sanders are virtually tied for the lead in political ad spending. Those candidates' campaigns have each spent more than $20 million and aired more than 38,000 spots, according to the Wesleyan Media Project. 
And ad spending is way up for everyone nationally Hmm. compared with 2008 and 2012. I talked with Erica Franklin Fowler, co-director of the Wesleyan Project. We're definitely seeing spending increase, which shouldn't be a huge surprise given the large number of outside groups who are involved in the race, which tend to raise costs even higher than we would see them in normal higher advertising years. So on the Republican side, you have, you know, the candidates and all of the the super PACs involved. And then on the Democratic side, you have just the two candidates. Well, we should talk about the Republicans. Um, Why aren't they advertising here as they are in other states? Well, Ryan, it's because the state GOP voted against conducting a presidential straw poll. While I've been told that some counties may conduct their own presidential straw polls, delegates to the national convention for the GOP won't be selected until April. So Republican candidates are focusing on Super Tuesday states where convention delegates are actually at stake. That doesn't mean those GOP candidates are necessarily being ignored here in Colorado. How do you mean? Well, TV ads aren't the only way to get the political message out. And there are several groups making phone calls, canvassing, and running digital ads for or against presidential candidates. The most significant spending so far, based on filings with the Federal Election Commission, is by the Service Employees International Union. That union endorsed Hillary Clinton, but they're spending more than $200,000 canvassing in Colorado to oppose Republican candidates Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz. SEIU is also running Spanish-language TV and radio ads supporting Hillary Clinton starting today. Uh, Are other groups spending in the state? Just a few so far. About $360,000 has been spent by all independent groups on supporting or opposing presidential candidates in Colorado. The second biggest spender is Priorities Action USA. That's the super PAC that supported President Obama and is now supporting Clinton. That group spent its money last year on digital ads opposing a variety of Republican candidates, mostly around the time of the October debate in Boulder. Meanwhile, the League of Conservation Voters spent more than $30,000 on polling and digital ads supporting Clinton, while the National Nurses United for Patient Protection spent more than 27000 on mailers supporting Sanders. So to recap, it's Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders on the Colorado airwaves, hoping to woo Super Tuesday caucus goers. Right, Ryan. At least for now, that is. And, you know, maybe we should be thankful. In my home state of Iowa, where the first caucuses were held, candidates were advertising from about Labor Day weekend onward. I saw Hillary Clinton ad Labor Day weekend while watching an Iowa football game on the Big Ten Network. Just wait until the presidential nominees are set. Colorado is a swing state, and we'll be getting so much attention. In fact, the Wesleyan Media Project found that in 2012, the number of presidential ads in the Denver market more than doubled over 2008. That group says Coloradans were subject to 463 hours of presidential ads in 2012, and this year we'll be electing a U.S. senator as well. So enjoy the relatively political, commercial-free TV after March 1st, because eventually it will end. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Sandra. Thanks so much, Ryan. Reporter Sandra Fish follows money in politics for us. She goes further in-depth at CPRnews.org. Coming up, how can a pay raise ever be a bad thing? We'll let you know. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A pay raise should be a good thing, especially for families that struggle to make ends meet. But that is not always the case in Colorado, because when someone's pay goes up, they may lose out on state money to cover the cost of child care. And that can be thousands of dollars a year. 
Lawmakers just took another step to change this. They passed a bill this week to make the system more flexible. Bill Jager supported the legislation. He is vice president of Early Childhood Initiatives at the Colorado Children's Campaign. And a bill welcomes the program. Thanks, Ryan. So if I'm a parent right now and I'm offered a pay raise at work, it may not be in my best interest to take it. That's right. Uh, if we look, for example, in Denver, a family making $54,000 a year, each parent, a family of four, each parent making maybe $13 an hour. Okay. Uh, if even one of those parents got a $1 an hour pay raise, they would all of a sudden become ineligible for our state's child care subsidy. Program. Like that. Just, Just like that. snap of the fingers. And we should say how expensive child care is in Colorado and yeah. how much this subsidy is needed. Yeah, it varies by age. But, uh, you know, at the high end for infants and toddlers and center-based child care, you're talking upwards of $13,000 a year on average. All right. So the, the point is that not only could it erase the, the, the raise itself, it, it could actually put them in the hole deeper. Exactly. And that's the big concern. It's what we call the cliff effect, that families will be economically rational. They'll do things like turn down a pay raise rather than go over that cliff. As I understand it, each county in Colorado sets the income level at which people are eligible for subsidies. Um, And those are pretty much set in stone, as you've described. So if your salary goes up, you know, just a bit above the limit, you are off the benefit rolls. Exactly. And those counties have different cost of living, so it makes sense to have that variability. Ah. But ultimately, even a raise uh, at anywhere uh, throughout the state could put you at a place where you're now ineligible for a very valuable uh, assistance. Have you met these families, these parents? What do they say happens when all of a sudden that subsidy disappears? Or do they tell you that they just refuse the raise? Yeah, it, it, we see both. Uh, that families oftentimes will uh, not necessarily know how close they are to that cliff. And so they modify behavior. They turn down extra hours. They turn down better paying jobs. They turn down salary increases. And that's a net negative outcome for that family, that child. And taxpayers in Colorado as a whole. You know of Coloradans that have said no to a promotion or even a new job for this reason? Exactly. And we've had testimony uh, at the legislature about this this very real experience. All right. Well, lawmakers have been looking at this for a few years now. They started to change the system in 2012. And this latest bill, which is now headed to the governor's desk, builds on those previous efforts. Um, what's the program lawmakers are supporting and, and what does it mean for a family? So essentially, uh, this is designed to give counties some flexibility to allow families who would otherwise go over that cliff be able to continue to receive a subsidy for up to two years, but pay more themselves. So reducing the size of the benefit, increasing the family's contribution, and ultimately moving that family away from public assistance and towards self-sufficiency. Is it enough flexibility to make a real change on the ground, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, This program has been up and running for about a year in about 10 counties. The bill that recently passed will now allow more counties to be able to pilot different strategies. And we're already seeing that families who otherwise would have either turned down that raise or gone over that cliff are actually being able to to move gradually again uh, towards that uh, economic self-sufficiency. Does it eliminate the cliff or just make the cliff sort of less dizzying? Uh, I would say that uh, it's very difficult given the high cost of childcare to ever say there's never going to be a cliff. But what it does do is it allows families to turn more into a hill rather than a steep drop off. Uh, To look more at this, um, I guess, philosophically, um, the idea of the subsidy is to let parents work and earn more money and become self-sufficient. 
so that their child is taken care of and they can focus on on work. Um, the roots are in the welfare reforms of the mid '90s, when the philosophy changed changed um, to you know try to wean people from government assistance, welfare to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been called. Mm-hmm. How effective has that been for kids in general? So I think a, a real uh, benefit has been the recognition that a necessary work support has been childcare. That families need access to childcare, especially young families at the beginning of their earning potential who otherwise might withdraw from the workforce. And again, overwhelmingly, uh, our participants in this program are are women uh, and women's workforce participation as net benefits for all. The challenge, of course, has been historically this program has been designed just as a work support as opposed to how do we ensure that the child has access to quality experiences. That cliff is not just a cliff for the adult who goes over and mm. now is going to have a, a benefit loss. It's a loss or a disruption in childcare for the child. Right. So it's thinking about the working life of the parent, but also the quality of life of the child. Exactly. It has to serve both of those needs. You mentioned how expensive childcare is in Colorado. And I suppose some listening might think, well, that's the problem, right? The problem isn't the 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 cliff itself it's that childcare is so expensive how does it compare to other states and and is there room for improvement there yeah it's difficult to get apples to apples comparison state to state but colorado in a lot of metrics does look a little bit higher the real challenge though is Childcare costs are very difficult to think about driving down. Uh, we have a workforce whose average salary in a childcare setting is about $11 an hour. Personnel is 80% of a childcare center's budget. And so, sort of thinking about how we would drive those costs down, for us, it's much more about how do we help families ensure that they can afford quality childcare. Very briefly, this bill passed with bipartisan support and um, at a time when politics, especially in this election year, feel very divided. uh, That's remarkable, I think. And this is uh, an example of of both Republicans and Democrats looking at something to fight poverty and saying we can both support this. What is it about this that appeals to both parties, do you think? I think that there's a real recognition that having families do things like turn down wages so they can stay on government assistance is probably not something we want to have policies that encourage. And that cuts both across both sides. Right. I can hear that as a stem speech from candidates of both parties, actually. Yeah. And that, that access to early learning, the brain science on quality early childhood experience is something that's bipartisan as well. People are realizing that the investments we make in the early years pay for themselves over the life of a child. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Bill Jager is vice president of Early Childhood Initiatives at the Colorado Children's Campaign. This conversation is part of CPR's coverage of child poverty. And at CPRnews.org, you can meet families that have experienced the cliff effect firsthand. We'll be right back to answer a question. When does a pretty picture become something more? conservation photographer Boyd Norton joins us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Photographer Boyd Norton of Evergreen travels all over the world taking nature photographs and working to protect the environment. Over the last 50 years, he has worked with organizations like the Smithsonian, National Geographic, and the New York Times. He has just released a conservation photography handbook, Quote, how to save the world one photo at a time. And Boyd, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be here. We're going to get to how conservation photography works in a moment. But I want a little peek into your life in the field. Tell us the cobra story. 
<laughs> oh, I once had the opportunity of uh, photographing a uh, spitting cobra in uh, a game reserve in northern Kenya. Spitting venom, I get it. Uh, oh, yeah. The spitting cobra actually spits venom. And uh, a very foolish thing, I, I discovered the cobra along the side of a path from a lodge we were staying in. And uh, I decided that uh, if I ran back to my <clears throat> tent to get my cameras, the cobra would be gone. So naturally, after having two beers for lunch, uh, I was pretty smart. And I thought, <laughs> well, I'll bring the cobra to the cameras. So I found a stick and lifted the cobra up with it. And uh, that was when I discovered it was a spitting cobra. Fortunately, I had my sunglasses on. Uh, because the venom in the eyes uh, is very serious. And it started to spit at you. And it was spraying, yeah. It was a very small snake. It was only about three feet long. They get much bigger. And so there was venom <clears throat> covering your lenses? It, yes, eventually when I was photographing it, um, it, it uh, was spitting enough so that it was on the front of my lens and my sunglasses and it was hard to focus the camera. Did the snake relent? Uh, the snake actually was very interesting. I finally turned it loose uh, and uh, took it well away from the camp. When I turned it loose, I started back toward the camp and I uh, was crossing a dry riverbed and turned around, discovered the snake was following me. And I thought, wow, <laughs> daddy, take me home. It seemed like it was bonding. Anyway, I, I chased it away and I went back and I was with some colleagues uh, uh, that evening. Uh, I was running one of my photo tours there, and I told uh, the folks that were with me on the trip about the, the spitting cobra, and I think the, that convinced them that they were traveling with some kind of a nut. Anyway, uh, they were worried about the cobra following me and uh, when I told them about it, and so I said, no, that, that's not a problem. But when I went to my tent that night, I did look under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in this new book, you talk about the difference between nature photography and conservation photography. And you say that landscapes are not necessarily the most critical part of conservation photography. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I really became involved in conservation photography back in the early 1960s when the Sierra Club started publishing these magnificent books, uh, Ansel Adams and, and Elliot Porter and others. And they were more than just landscape photographs. I mean, the, the, the photographs told a story about the feeling of a place. And, and when you're trying to capture the essence of a place, the, the wide angle and the big, you know, landscape photographs don't really give you a sense of, of the feeling of a place. Hmm. And the feeling of a place has to do with close-ups of, of flowers and raindrops dripping off of uh, pine needles and reflections in, in water and streams and so on, just to give a, a good uh, feeling to the viewer of a sense of place and what it's like. You even talk about the value of ugly photos in conservation photography. What do you mean? Absolutely. No. You can photograph the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, and the bad and the ugly are almost as important as showing the beauty of a place. And what I try to do in whenever I'm working on a particular conservation project, trying to save a place, is to give people a sense of 
What would happen to this place if the threat, for example, is clear-cut logging a beautiful forest hmm. or building a dam on a, on a wonderful wild river? To show what the effect would be, to give an example and show what a clear-cut looks like after all the trees have been cut down, or what the wild river looks like after a dam has been built and a water impoundment behind the dam. A little taste of before and after, I suppose. Exactly. Um, in some cases, I've, I've had the photograph. I had an assignment years ago to document the uh, terrible poaching that was going on in East Africa, elephant and rhino poaching. And I really wanted to show how awful that was. So I took close-up photos, for example, of a dead rhino with its horns cut off. Hmm. And it was shocking, but sometimes you have to shock people in order to get them to understand the horror of things like the elephant and rhino poaching that went on. And it's still going on right now. It's a serious problem in Africa. We have many of your photos on our website right now. If you'd like to put an image to the one in your head, uh, cprnews.org, including the photo of that snake that chased you. We're speaking (laughs) with conservation photographer Uh, Boyd Norton, um, he has a conservation photography handbook, How to Save the World, One Photo at a Time. In your long career, what photo or perhaps series of photos has garnered the most attention? I think it was early on in the mid-1960s, one of the very first battles that I got involved in was saving Hell's Canyon. Now, even today, not many people know what Hell's Canyon is. Yeah, place this for us. It is uh, carved by the Snake River. Uh, It's on the border of Idaho. It forms the border of Idaho and Oregon. Uh, Many people don't know that it is the deepest canyon in America. It is Deeper than the Grand Canyon. Almost 2,000 feet deeper than the the average depth of the Grand Canyon. Goodness. It's almost 8,000 feet deep. And it's a magnificent wild place. And I, I started using my photography then when we were fighting this battle to show people what this place was like. Because back then, nobody had ever heard of Hell's Canyon. And even today, it's not very well known. And they were going to put a major dam, almost as big as the Glen Canyon or Hoover Dam, that would have wiped out this last free-flowing stretch of the Snake River. And turned a portion of the canyon essentially into a lake or kind of impoundment. Exactly. Yeah. It would, yes, that, that area would be under several hundred feet of water. Uh, so these pictures had a, had a big influence. Uh, Audubon Magazine in 1970 was uh, – January of 1970, was publishing an article and a photo essay about Hell's Canyon of mine. And I happened to be in New York in the fall of 69. The editor had just gotten the proofs from the printers for the article. And I was so excited because they they did a marvelous job. I mean, the, the reproductions were gorgeous. I grabbed a bunch of those, jumped on a plane to Washington, and had a meeting with a young, newly elected senator from Oregon, Bob Packwood. Mm laid the pictures on his desk, and he went through them one by one and looked at them. And then he looked up and said, holy expletive, <laughs> is this in my state? Really? He didn't even He was even not know. aware. He was not aware, and he got so excited, he went on to introduce our bill. But that was an interesting line between uh, photojournalism and advocacy, 
And help me understand how you see yourself. Are, are you a photojournalist? Are you an advocate with a camera? I mean, going to Washington was an act of advocacy, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. And that's one of the things I urge in the book also is that if you're, if you're going to be a conservation photographer and really get involved in saving a place or places, um, get active, get involved. Have an agenda. Have an agenda. Okay. Start showing the pictures to the right people who may be in a position to save the places that you're uh, concerned about. So, yeah, the I am a photojournalist. Uh, I'm an advocate as well. And, and I, I just believe that if you really care about some of the beautiful places like we have here in Colorado, when the threats come, do something about it. Use your photography. Photographs can be a very powerful influence on people. But if they were so powerful, wouldn't they have changed the world already? Wouldn't the world be... Oh, possibly. Um, yes, it's it's really hard to say. It depends on how the photographs are used. I mean, uh, individually, we have seen photographs, for example, by some really top-notch photojournalists showing the horrors of war. I think of the, the father carrying, the Syrian father carrying his son on the beach. Absolutely. That one, and during the Vietnam War, the the pictures of the horribly burned young lady, young girl yeah. uh, from Napalm. And, uh, you know, these things have impact on us. And and it's easy enough nowadays to get great photographs. The digital revolution that's taken place in photography has really had a big impact. If anything, maybe maybe so much so that we're we're – inundated online with so many visual images, and some of them are so good that, uh, you know, maybe we don't react the way we should. Well, that's fascinating. In other words, I think a lot of people talk about, in journalism, you know, we're not all watching Walter Cronkite, so we're all not having this collective experience that can lead to political change. And I think what you're saying there is there are so many photographs, so many outlets, so many of us able to take a a picture with a smartphone camera wherever we are. Right. That, is it diluting the power of photography somehow? Well, it can, and it does, I think, at times. But again, it depends on the individual taking the photograph and as to how you use it. You know, simply posting it online somewhere or putting it on social media it may not be enough. I mean, get active, get involved if you really care about a place. Use that photo or series of photos to influence uh, some legislator or get other people to uh, speak out, as, as you might be, giving presentations, for example. I'm often asked to, to give presentations to organizations uh, like, you know, uh, some of the civic clubs. Uh, and uh, I use that opportunity to make a pitch for certain concerns that I have that are going on, not only here in America, but worldwide. Uh, best piece of advice for taking a good photo? Oh. <laughs> Put your heart into it. It's, you know, you, you, photography has been described as, as the art of seeing. And sometimes uh, when we use a, a, our smartphone or a point-and-shoot camera or, or a very sophisticated single-lens reflex camera, um, 
We need to examine what's in that picture. Try to make it as strong an image as possible. And that sometimes that means moving in closer or zooming in with a zoom lens. Tighten it up. Get a, a very powerful image if you can. Of course, you don't want to move too close to a grizzly bear or a rhino. <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, but I like how you said earlier, you know, getting the image of a raindrop can say as yeah. much or more about a place than that, you know, vast panoramic view. Well, it gives a good feeling about a place. I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Well, thank you, Ryan. Colorado photographer Boyd Norton. His new book is Conservation Photography. We've posted a slideshow of some of his photos and a couple of his videos as well to CPRnews.org. I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. On the way. The way of slipping away. I turn my feelings on. You made me untouchable for life. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Oh,